December 10th, 2023. This one's called Close to the Bone. Greetings, everyone. I'm in the sauna, sweating it up, and I figured I would do a wee tidbit about something somewhat seasonal, but also really good just for this uh, cold time of year. And by seasonal, I mean the festive season of Yule or Christmas, of course. But for today, I want to talk about meat on the bone which has kind of fallen by the wayside in this modern culture where everyone just wants something quick. Typically that means muscle meat, sometimes it even means tranny meat, and people are afraid of eating meat on the bone. Even people who have been eating meat their whole lives who aren't, you know, not eating meat for, let's say, other reasons, spiritual, uh, ethical, um, nutritional, whatever their belief may be, People are afraid to eat meat on the bone. All this stuff with uh, boneless ribs and boneless wings. Mine's ogling. So I wanted to talk about meat on the bone. And I want to talk specifically about lamb, which I think is an underutilized meat, especially here in the States. Maybe not in other parts of the world, but here in the States, beef is typically the king of ruminant meat. Bison, too, is gaining in popularity. It's similar in taste to beef, so I think that's why it's probably popular. But lamb is is quite tasty, and it makes for delicious recipes where you're able to get meat that's on the bone that's going to be more economical and also has more of the uh, gelatin and the connective uh, bits, so it's actually healthier. It's more of a whole food than just eating let's say chopped meat or a steak, like many of us are so accustomed to. And that's kind of part of this whole sterile culture. When you think about what they typically market as tranny meats, they're not marketing like a drumstick on the bone or stew meat or any of these things, leg of lamb. That would be kind of hard to actually mock those things anyway, because they have all this connective tissue and most of those things I mentioned are on bones. But they're typically mocking stuff like a chicken breast, uh, ground or mince meat, which can have, you know, connective tissue depending on what type of cut it's made from, a steak, and even they're doing it more with some of these kind of uh, fast kind of oven meats like chicken fingers or, you know, things like that, which are really quite an abomination unless, of course, you're making them at home. So let's begin by talking about why we would want to eat the whole cut of meat, why we'd want to approach eating from a nose to tail perspective. And this quote comes from Dr. Ray Pete from one of his articles on his website, Gelatin, Stress and Longevity. And like we know from listening to many of the clips I've done as of late, we live in a totally like stressed society, hella stressy. Even if we're doing all the good things, we're still living in a very compromised environment that our ancestors, even our recent ancestors, didn't have exposure to these things. So here's a quote to get us kind of acclimated to this uh, vein of philosophy. People have asked me why I recommend gelatin since I recommend eating only whole foods. That is right, but we rarely eat whole foods, including whole animal foods, and that is 100% the case. And that's even true for the majority of people who are eating animal foods. It's even true with a lot of these people who only eat animal foods, who are doing these carnivorous ways of existence. A lot of those people are just pounding the muscle meat. And in many ways, that can be advantageous 
compared to some of these nose to tail carnivore people who are eating a tremendous amount of ophal or organs, which we never really did in um, society, nor did we ever eat this heap of muscle meat, but you run into big problems when you eat a lot of the ophal, especially the liver and the kidneys. And many of you who have heard my shows like the Ancestral Con know what happens when you pair a modern uh, lifestyle and upbringing with excess vitamin A. So to continue the quote, we throw away the bones and the skin and are told not to eat the skin because it has fat in it. However, this is precisely here where the gelatin is found. Gelatin contains thyroid protective amino acids, which can help balance the antithyroid, thyroid suppressing amino acids prevalent in the muscle meats, beef, lamb, poultry, and fish. Those main amino acids are cysteine and tryptophan. And anyone familiar with the sleepiness you get after you eat the Thanksgiving meal, turkey is super high in tryptophan. In addition, the antithyroid amino acids are released in large quantities during stress and hypothyroidism itself increases the catabolism, tearing down of protein, even though general metabolism is slowed down. So even if you're eating, quote, enough protein, which some of us aren't even doing that, but even if you're eating, quote, enough protein, if you're eating ones that mainly have the inflammatory profile that are going to be high in cysteine and tryptophan, you're really not doing yourself any favors. The person who's actually eating less is probably going to fare quite better. That's why people who take thyroid medication typically need to up the amount they're taking when they eat heaps of muscle meat. And of course, there are many ways to get gelatin into the diet. Probably the most um, quick and easy way is to just use gelatin powder to add to soups and stews, to add to beverages, to make uh, gummies and jello with. And I would always suggest using gelatin over collagen because collagen is more broken down, therefore it's more processed. And gelatin in a jar or can is always going to be more processed than the gelatin we're able to slowly render from cooking one of these slow cuts of meat that have all the different amino acids and um, um, with the amino acids, but also, you know, lack, lack the ones we don't want and also have the gelatin. So I always think that starting with the gelatin powder, if you're going to go that route is far better than the collagen powder, which is more broken down. So therefore it's more of a processed food. So what are some cuts? We're talking about lamb here. What are some cuts that are groovy for cooking in this way? And I'm reading from a wonderful book that I procured just last week or so at this used bookstore. I got this groovy book for $2, believe it or not. It's called Falling Off the Bone by Jean Anderson. And it's a collection of recipes using beef, veal, lamb, and pork. And they're all using these supposed peasant cuts of meat that you cook low and slow that have this more balanced amino acid profile and they end up being gelatinous cuts. Just got to open the door of the sauna. It's a little bit getting hot in here. I think I'm going to actually turn the temperature down. Okay, so what are some of these cuts that we can uh, use if we're talking about low and slow cooking? And lamb, of course. The lamb breast, it's a flat, lean, bony cut. Uh, it can be used boned and stuffed and rolled and braised, kind of like almost like a brajol. It can be divided into ribs and braised. And all of this, of course, takes more planning. 
This is a great way to use the slow cooker or the crock pot this time of year. The neck, maybe that sounds kind of um, wild to some people. It has lean, gristly round slices with a singular round bone and thin outer layer of fat. It's not widely available, but you can find it online. Uh, here in the States, you can find it from a purveyor called uh, US Wellness Meats. That's grasslandbeef.com. The neck is really good in soups and stews. Another cut of lamb can be used is riblets. These are the rib ends that have heap of uh, heaps of bones on them. So these are good for soup, stews, and braises. And of course, when you cook like this, take the bones out, or if you're serving it to other humans, tell them there's bones in this. Uh, don't just serve it and let them know there's no bones because I think so many people are so acclimated to eating things that don't have bones in them that they won't expect it unless they know. Another great cut that's really uh, high in gelatin would be the shank. Lean and sinewy. Uh, the foreshank is preferable. This could be used in soups for the smaller bony ones or used in braises for the meatier portions. And finally, the shoulder. This is probably the most versatile cut of lamb. It um, comes from the blade chop or also the arm chop. Also, stew meat and ground lamb can be made from the shoulder. And the best utilizations for shoulder meat would be pot roast, boned, stuffed, and rolled, uh, stews, braises for the actual full chop, and meat loaves and meat balls, and that would be for the ground lamb. So, so many ways to cook as opposed to just buying the muscle meat cut, which, yes, it may be more familiar, it may be less time to cook it, but it's always going to be a lot more money. That's 100% for sure. And you're not going to get this uh, whole foods profile of amino acids, which is what we're really trying to do. And we need this more and more than ever living in this modern world that already has a stress. So it really doesn't make any sense to eat in a way that's going to cause more stress for the body when we already live in this world of like zog fog, why fry. Many of us are inundated and um, abuse ourselves by looking at all different types of unsavory and deleterious images on the anti-social media on the regular. So we want to do everything we can that we have control of. And one of those things we have big control of is our diet. So let's read a little bit about the history of lamb and then go over a couple of recipes that I think are just the tops. And I will be posting these over on the Tabitha's Kitchen Telegram channel. So historians believe that lamb may have been the first red meat eaten by man. And from domesticated sheep, at the judging from the cachet of 9,000-year-old lamb bones found in Iraq, they further believe that sheep are indigenous to the Middle East. Certainly the Bible is strewn with references to them. And yes, of course it is. Even we think of things like the Lamb of God. So it's very much a meat that has an old historical context. Sturdy creatures... Sheep can graze hard scrabble heights and endure burning desert sand. They are docile, easily raised in flocks, and to primitive man, indispensable for their milk, their meat, and the wool they provided. As early as 4000 BC, there was a lucrative wool trade in Babylon. The name of Babylon actually means land of the wool. To this day, lamb is the meat of choice throughout the eastern Mediterranean, the Middle East, and India, and figures prominently in the Abrahamic religions. Sometime between 800 and 500 BC, sheep were exported to England from the Phoenician ports of Sidon and Tyre, and we have the English to thank for developing meteor stock 
from these rangy imports and introducing them to the overseas colonies of Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa, but not to America. Columbus brought sheep to Cuba and Santo Domingo on his second voyage, and later Cortez, then to Coronado, traveled throughout the American Southwest with flocks of sheep, meaty Spanish churas that became the foundation of America's lamb industry. Exploring northern New Mexico not so many years ago, I watched fascinated as shepherds, most of them Basques, and the Basques, uh, is an, uh, they are from a very interesting region of Spain where they kind of have kept all of their own culture, their food, their looks, their language, and they have one of the highest percentages of RH negative, O negative blood of any humans in the world. So the author was watching these shepherds, these Basque people, guide flocks down the Rio Grande to drink, rivers of fleece eddying across the barren slopes. The bulk of America's lamb is now raised in the West, but those who relish it live in the Eastern metropolises like Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. It definitely tends to be more of a cosmopolitan uh, meat, if you will. In central North Carolina, where I grew up, lamb didn't land on many dinner tables. My mother turned lamb's shoulder into stew or pot roast to the horror of my school chums, whose mothers only cooked pork or beef. Times have changed, old prejudices have, have died, and the cuts of lamb my mother's special ordered have come to the supermarket. So what exactly is lamb? It's sheep that is less than a year old, though most lamb coming to market is between five and eight months of age. One to two years old are yearlings, and I believe that's what's called hogget, which you rarely, if ever, see here in the States. And they're on their way to becoming mutton. Anything older than two years is mutton, which typically is gamier than lamb and also tougher, which is true of most meat. So a bit about the lamb nutritional profile. Like any other red or ruminant meat, lamb is an excellent source of protein and B vitamins, and it's also rich in zinc. So it's got a lot going on for it. And if we're talking about it from the traditional Chinese perspective, it's a good food because it's very young, so it builds heat in the body. So it's great for people who run cold or feel overly yin, who have yang deficiency. It's also good in the colder weather. It's also good if you're dealing, pardon me, with a blood deficiency because it's a very nurturing food. Typically, red meat is good for building blood in the body as are green vegetables. And when I mean green vegetables, I mean cooked, especially if you have digestive issues or you're living somewhere where it's cold right now, you don't want to be eating raw salad. That's just uh, zoggery, essentially. So a lot of ways to um, really add lamb to your life. And here in the States, I have found that the majority of the meat in the grocery store is just Zio sludge. It's just the reality of things, especially when it comes to the pork and the chicken, because they're grown using really deleterious uh, feed and conditions, and they really end up having a very unsavory and unsaturated uh, lipid profile. And when you combine that unsavory and unsaturated lipid profile with the fact that it's a, a pro-inflammatory muscle meat, it's no wonder why a lot of people who are still eating, you know, enough protein run into all these problems, right? But we're never really told these things. We're just told that protein is good, meat is good, and we leave it at that. And that's not true. It's always more nuanced than that. There's always nuance to everything, but a lot of people 
they have these one-track minds. I just want to be told, this is bad, this is good, do that. It doesn't work like that. So now, just to round out this little tidbit, I want to talk about a couple of recipes that I found of interest whilst I was looking through this book. And they all, for the most part, except one, well, there's only three I'm going to share right now because there's just so many, but these are the flavors that I like. The two that I found to be the most spectacular were actually from Great Britain. The first one is from North Wales. It's called Angsley Cottage Call. And this is a lovely stew that uses either lamb neck or lamb shoulder with a luscious melange of root vegetation, carrots, parsnips, celery root, what's known as celerac, rutabaga or swede, as well as red skin potatoes. So how, how seasonal is that? And I really like these like clean Northern European flavors. I'm not too into like tons of garlic and tons of spice and tons of tomato. I mean, sometimes that can be quite fitting, but for me, I really like these, these plain flavors and really the only seasonings in this besides onion and scallions is parsley, nutmeg, and pepper. So this one sounds awesome, this Angsley Cottage Call. And then I found two other ones which really spoke to me that I thought were quite luscious. Like I said, this is all going to be in the Tabitha's Kitchen Telegram, which also funnels into the Tabayuga White Wellness main channel. The other one is from Scotland, and this is Crofter's Lamb and Potato Pie. So a crofter is someone who owns their own small farm. And this is a luscious pie with lamb and potatoes using boneless lamb shoulder that actually makes its own gravy whilst it cooks in the oven. And this one calls for a refrigerated pie crust. I would avoid those because the lipid profile in those is hazardous. I would suggest making your own pie crust at home, which is not that hard. We're always told that making pie crust, making fish, cooking beans, these are the things that I've ran um, about cooking with people for, for years, that everyone has this intimidation about pie crust, cooking beans from dry and making fish. These things are not daunting. They're actually very easy to make at home, including pie crust. You can use a food processor to make it more uh, streamlined. You could also use a pastry cutter. And the best pie crusts are not made with zog shortening. They're actually made with leaf lard, which is lard that comes from the uh, back, like the spinal region of the hog, which has a much more mild flavor than the lard that runs throughout the body. And of course, you're going to want to get a good pastured lard that has more of a monounsaturated lipid profile than the polyunsaturated lipid profile, which the majority of the hog that's sold in the markets is going to be that. So this crofter's lamb and potato pie is basically just a pie with lamb shoulder, red skin potatoes, very um, nice seasonings of parsley, thyme, and pepper. And that could be made ahead of time and probably just had a slice uh, taken as is. Perhaps one could even make a hand pie utilizing this. Hand pies, savory hand pies. That's something that's really big across the pond, like in uh, England and Scotland and Wales and Ireland. The, hand, the savory hand pie really had never really caught on uh, here. Maybe a couple of centuries ago, it was more of a, of a thing, but I love the idea of a savory hand pie. It's basically a sandwich, but it's made with short crust or pie pastry. And typically, you know, what's on a sandwich? It's muscle meat for the most part, whether it's fish or land meat, it's always muscle meat. And in these hand pies, it's typically more stew meat. So it's less of that uh, inflammatory amino acid profile and you get more of this kind of whole foods experience. But I think we should bring hand pies back into um, existence. 
And finally, I found this super interesting Swedish recipe. It's braised blade chops of lamb that are made with a gravy that has coffee and cream and red currant jelly. So you braise the lamb chop, then you take it off the bone, and then you make this really groovy gravy with um, a little bit of espresso powder, heavy cream, and red currant jelly, which is supposed to be served with brown or white rice or potatoes or possibly even wild rice. So just good old fashioned, um, what they say like meat and potatoes cooking, which can sometimes get a bad reputation that people who only like to eat this way are simpletons or don't really know what's going on. But you think of all these people who are doing all these like modern trends and uh, they're suffering for it, you know, uh, frozen kale smoothies. Um, there is just so many abominations I could name, but sometimes it's just good to go back to basics. And when we go back to basics, not only do we eat the food that makes us feel really good, this is really tasty stuff. It just takes maybe a little bit more planning to make these things, but next time you're at the market, hopefully it's a market that sells good meats, sometimes more of a butcher would be um, appropriate in this regard. Or what I typically do is I just buy in bulk online and then I keep it in my deep freeze because that's what works best for me. Because like I said prior, the majority of the meat in the store is is pretty much, um, it's poison. With the exception of maybe if you're able to procure lamb that will say it's from Australia or New Zealand, that typically is okay. And with lamb, lamb are pretty much only fed grass. Most of the cattle here in the States and sometimes even cattle that comes uh, imported from other parts of the world, it may say it's grass fed or grass finished, but we know it's just fed like zog corn and zog soy. So if you're at the market, lamb typically seems to be a, a safer meat to procure. But next time you're looking to make something, think about making something with one of these uh, stew cuts that are close to the bone. And you will not only be doing something good for your health, but you'll be honoring your ancestors in the process. So that's it on this little tidbit called close to the bone. I hope that was good listening for you. And I'm wishing everyone a uh, luscious uh, Sunday, wherever they are in this big white world. Until next time, Satnam.